done fell right down that rabbit hole So reality is questionable Try but you just can't let it go These two right here put on the show It's paranormal overload with southern hospitality Haunted murder mayhem tip while discussing immortality Locations with a dark past History that comes to life Hillbillies with a knack for Everything that goes bump at night Overthinking if you by yourself These two will have you turning on the lights Mixing in a little comedy to make sure it all fits in just right Hey, Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Story Now here's your hosts Jerry and Tracy Paul Tender Dog Ninja Sometimes they're cat Freddy, but never the ferrets. Hey guys, welcome to episode 322 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. So Tracy, we are actually out of town as this airs, so we're going to do a Patreon episode. And man, this is a crazy story out of Poland. It's not paranormal, but it's one of those head scratchers. That just make you think, you know, sit and think, well, how in the heck did this happen? Because none of this makes sense. Mm, so Interesting. But anyways, we've got that. And then we're going to uh, have Diane's student on doing a uh, an interview where we talked about the McKenzie Poltergeist. She tells okay. us all about the McKenzie Poltergeist over in uh, England. Okay. Sounds so great. It's going to be a fun show. Obviously, we want to thank all of our military and civil service members all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thank you for being part of our allied forces. Yes, thank you guys so much for having our backs. We pray for you guys every single day, and we pray that you can come home to your family soon. Thank you for keeping us safe. All right, Tracy. As usual, even though we're not here, I wanted to make sure that we added that, obviously, that this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp.com slash Hillbilly. And that we want everybody to be reminded that there is always help for you out there, whether it be through BetterHelp, whether it be through us, whether it be through uh, our group. We just want people to know that if you need to talk, we're here for you. Yes, please do. Um, Our group is always open to you guys day or night. And we also have the number that you can call. It's now 988 you can also text 741-741. Please reach out, guys. We're here for you day or night. It doesn't matter where we're at. Just, you know, know you that we're here to talk with you guys. So, you know, we love you all, and we're just here to listen. All right. So without further ado, uh, we'll go ahead and play this episode for you guys. This aired in March of uh, this year on Patreon. So I think you guys will get a big kick out of it, and then uh, we'll stay tuned for Diane. Afterwards, there won't be any patreon or um itunes reviews this week obviously because we're not here and we're recording this a couple weeks in advance yes all right enjoy guys and we'll talk to you soon you are listening to the hillbilly horror stories patreon bonus episode please welcome your host jerry and tracy Pauly. Hey guys, welcome to the March 2022 Patreon bonus episode. Nice. Tracy, tonight's story is not going to be paranormal, but it's going to be puzzling as hell. Oh, well, that's going to be bad news for me. (laughs) It's one of those mysteries that will leave you scratching your head, trust me. Ah. And I was telling you, I first heard about this last week. This is a fairly recent story. This happened just a couple of years ago. Oh, good. But I just heard uh, an episode that talked a little bit about this. It was kind of a shortened version. And so I researched it, and I found some other stuff on it. And I just found it completely fascinating. So I thought this would be a perfect episode to do for for this um, March edition. Well, let's do it. It centers around... The mysterious circumstances surrounding the death of Matus Kowacki. Matus was a 30-year-old Polish man who was from a small village called Hutko, and that's in the southern part of Poland. He had a pregnant fiance. She was in a town called Lipia Gora that was also in Poland, but they had been having a long-distance relationship 
for about five years. He had been uh, having trouble finding work in that area, apparently, because being a small village. So a lot of the people from that area would leave and go to Germany for work, and that's what he did. He went to Hanover, Germany, and he worked as a carpenter, and he'd been doing that for the past five years. Uh, we'll get into it a little more later, but that was about about a four-hour drive from where they were, okay. from where she was. Uh-huh. So they were working about four hours apart. Matus lived with his father in Hanover, who was also there for work. Now, he desperately wanted to be there for the birth of his child. So on March 28, 2018, he got the call that his fiance had gone into labor. So he jumped into his BMW and he started the long drive from Germany to Poland. Like I said, it was about four, about a four-hour drive. I, and it really, I guess it depends because they got the Audubon that has no speed limit and that's what he got on. But it's about 400 miles. So however it would take, but that's what it was, about 400 miles. He should have arrived around 8 or 9 a.m. the following morning from when he left. Now, his father said that he got a phone call from him at 10.30 that morning, which was March 29th, telling him that he had been delayed for a few hours because of the traffic in Germany. So he was still a little bit away. In that call, he said that he was currently, and I'm probably going to butcher this name, he was currently in Sisian, which is a uh, German-Poland border town, but on the German—I mean, on the Poland side. So it's a little town that's right on the border, but it was mm-hmm. in Poland. He said that he was about 133 miles still left to go to get to where he needed to be. He also sent two texts to his fiance saying that he would be there in about two hours. Okay. That was the last anyone ever heard from Matus. Oh no. Hours later, after the birth of the child and his fiance became increasingly worried because he was not answering his phone, he wouldn't answer in text, and sometimes when she would call, most of the time when she would call, it would go straight to voicemail. Occasionally it would ring through, but nobody would ever answer, and mm-hmm. then it would go to voicemail. Mm-hmm. So they were concerned. His Matusa's mother and his fiance, they both tried to go and report him as a missing person, but they were told by... German police and Polish police that they needed to give it a little more time before they could report him missing because it still hadn't been that long. Remember, this is the end of March mm-hmm. 29th when uh, they basically he didn't show up. In early um, April, they went and finally was able to try to report him missing in Germany and in Poland. The German police, though, they refused to investigate Because they said, hey, the Polish police are handling it. So we don't need to both look at it. So that's the way. It kind of pissed the family off because they're like, but we don't know where he disappeared at. But but they were saying, well, he was in Poland, supposedly. So they had to handle it there. There you go. Then the family asked the Polish police if they could locate Matusa's cell phone, which was apparently on for a few days after he disappeared. But... They couldn't research the phone because the phone had a German SIM card. And German police couldn't locate it either because they said apparently he went missing in Poland. Well, this whole thing sounds messed up. I'm telling you. Polish police later said that it never actually connected, his cell phone, it never connected to any Polish network. And they aren't exactly sure where he was when he called his father when he said he was in that town in Poland. Because it never connected to a Polish network, so they don't know how he could have made the phone call. Huh. The border that day, when he crossed, that he would have crossed, they weren't asking for passports or anything. I guess they were just letting people go. And because they weren't asking for passports and everything, they just relied on uh, CCTV monitoring of the border. So it was all just by film and, and video. So according to the CCTV footage... Matus never crossed the border into Poland. They don't have any film of his car or anything crossing. So Matus's family obviously became frustrated with the efforts of police in both countries. So they started to do a little search all of their own. They started checking the entire route. Although, so they looked at every road from where he would have been 
all the way into Germany. They even looked on the side streets. They started talking to any gas stations along the way. They talked to the staffs mm-hmm. there. They even asked for video surveillance for the day and the time in question. They traveled to markets in all of the towns that were near the border, and they showed his picture, and they hung up posters. The family appeared on several German and Polish TV uh, television shows several times to talk about their feelings about the police in both countries and then how they, they just didn't feel like they were doing enough. Well, I mean, why don't think they work together? It makes no sense. Right. So now, now obviously, the, the story is, as we just covered, is strange because anytime you have a story of somebody who just mysteriously ends up missing, it's going to be strange. But what happens next will only leave you scratching your head and asking yourself, how in the hell? On September 12th, 2018, almost six months after uh, Matus went missing, Matus's mother gets a knock on her door. It's her neighbor. The neighbor asks if any of their livestock is missing. To which Matusa's mother replied that no, they didn't have any livestock missing, but obviously she was curious why the neighbor had asked this. Apparently, the neighbor said that there was a terrible smell that had been coming from their barn since July, and the neighbors just assumed that it was a dead animal. Mm -hmm. The neighbors asked if it was okay for him to kind of go over there and just check out the barn. Well, the way the barn is set up, it's kind of half of it is walled off. So you got barn on one side and a room on the other side that the wall, they've made a room out of it. And then on top of that room, there is a, uh, an attic area where they use for storage and stuff like mm-hmm. that. The neighbor climbs up to the attic area and all this is visible from the ground, but he climbs up from the, to the attic area and he sees a pile of clothes laying there. As he closer inspects it, he was shocked to see not only clothes, but human remains. The corpse was badly decomposed, so bad that it couldn't be identified. The other important thing to note here is that the body was decapitated. (gasps) The head and torso were both there, but they were separate. Further examination of the area showed that there were two nooses hanging from the roof and a backpack on the floor underneath where this body was found. The backpack was later determined to be Matusis. This is odd as well. Some, Some of the teeth had been knocked out of his skull and they were stuck to his clothes with what seemed to be blood. There were also bloody patches on his clothes. Now, inside the backpack was a Polish water bottle that had cigarette butts inside. Now, the next item that they found was an orange juice box. Now, this was strange because his family claims that he hated orange juice with a passion and he would never have a box of orange juice on him. But they couldn't get police to search the box for any kind of prints. Why not? What is wrong with them? I don't know. Now, you know, just like every story has two sides, and we'll get to the police's side here in just a little bit. There was also a cell phone in the backpack. It only showed one call. That was to his uncle on March 30th, but it lasted less than a second, so it's assumed that that was an accidental call. Oh. But all the other calls were gone or not erased or something. Mm-hmm. They did do DNA analysis on the body, and it was confirmed to be Matus. There was no other DNA detected on any of the personal belongings other than his. The police and the public prosecutors say that the death was a suicide, and they refused to investigate any further. Despite a strong appeal from the family. So let's try to answer some questions before we get any deeper. Now you might be asking, 
why was the body decapitated? The police say that it's not unusual with the weight of a body hanging that during the decomposition process that it probably just the weight of the body got too much and it probably separated at the neck where the noose was, causing both parts Yikes. to fall separately. I want to know why he was at that house. Why? I mean, that's a good question. And the, another question about here was if that was a suicide by hanging, why did he have knocked out teeth that appeared to be... Now, you could say that the head fell and hit something and knocked teeth out after death. And I'm sure that's possible. But why was it, you know, why was it sticking to, stuck to his clothes in blood and why were there bloody patches? I would think that if all that happened after decomposition, there wouldn't have been any blood for that to happen with. I don't know, though. I mean, because it might have been something other than blood. It might have just been decomposition juices and stuff, that mm. fluids that come out. Anyways, police believed that he had planned his death way before now, and they said there was no evidence whatsoever of foul play. Now, unfortunately... The exact pieces of evidence that the prosecutors used to make this decision were never released to the public. So they didn't say, because of this, this is why we think that. And we do have some information, though. Here's some problems from the family, though, that's going to make you question anything that the police said as their reasoning. Four days after his body was found, Matusa's shoe with a foot still in it was found inside the barn showing that the police did not do a thorough search of the barn, or they would have found that. Well, how did his foot get off of his body? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, decomposition. Things can fall off, just like his head did. Prosecutors were able to gather a lot of evidence, including DNA, export reports, and an analysis of his phone. German police obtained security camera footage, and they conducted a search of his apartment in Hanover there. All evidence was analyzed by experts in Warsaw, Poland. Now, according to the police, this is what they say happened. Matus had lied to his family the day that he disappeared. They say that he was not in that little town in Poland, that Sesuwan or whatever that I can't pronounce. They said he was not there when he called his family, and he definitely wasn't driving at the time. How they know this, I'm not sure. They said he was still in Germany, according to receipts that were in his belongings. So I guess in his backpack or Mm -hmm. on his body, there were receipts that were in Germany at the time that he claimed to have been networked in Poland. He had actually taken a train to the German border town of Frankfurt, Odder Oder, and then he most likely walked over a bridge to the Polish town of Slovis almost 24 hours after telling his family that he was already in Poland. He then checked into a hotel room in Slovis with another unknown person. Matus took a train to Warsaw the next day and then a bus to Zamosk, which is the largest town next to his hometown about 13 miles away from where he eventually was found. He arrived in Zamosk around midnight. Now, it's unknown how he got to Hutcombe, where his family lived from that point. But this is what is according to police. His family says different. They say that he was heading for his fiance's hospital and not his hometown. His car at BMW has never turned up despite a wide search in Poland and Germany. They haven't found any evidence of it being transferred or new owner registration. The keys were also not located, despite his wallet being found in the backpack that was in the barn. The attic area in the barn was visible from the ground, and the family says that they used that barn all throughout the summer of 2018. So it would be very unlikely that they wouldn't have noticed a hanging body never mind the smell of a rotting corpse. Matusa's cousin said that it's very strange because 
They had been to that barn several times, and during that time, the door was wide open and nobody noticed anything. Now, the prosecutors claim that he was hanging there, but we don't think so. That's according to his cousin. And Matusa's sister, she says that the officers uh, initially involved were negligent. She said that they refused to search the barn, barn thoroughly because it would take too much time to sift through the hay. Wow. And, the, and that hay would lay on the ground right underneath where his body was. And he was laying on hay where they found him. Well, they sound like a joke. Yeah. So while prosecutors found the officer's actions did not uh, meet the standard for criminal negligence, an internal uh, police investigation did find wrongdoing and the two officers were reprimanded for what that's worth. That's worth nothing. That's worth crap. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. So, anyways. That's a crazy story. Yeah, it's it's absolutely I mean, crazy. Because, I don't know, it, it's just nothing makes sense. So, apparently, was he having an affair with somebody? I don't know. But, I mean, there's all kinds of questions. Who did he meet in uh, Slubbis? I mean, who was the person that he checked into in the hotel? Why would he lie and say he's on his way to the birth of a baby and end up committing suicide? Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. On his family. Sense. I mean, he could have committed suicide anywhere he wanted to. Well, yeah. Why would he come all the way back to the family barn to do that? What happened to his BMW? And why would somebody who was so excited about having a, a new baby, why, why would he commit suicide, especially on that day? Yeah. There's so many there's unanswered shady, questions. Yeah, there's some shady stuff in there. Well, crap. I was reading uh, on one of the stories, somebody had put a comment that said, he left Hanover by train and his BMW vanished. So he might have driven it into a body of water to let it disappear. And according to the experiences of adventures with per on purpose, uh, the other sonar searchers, it's mostly within a circle of five miles from the home of the owner. If it's suicide, how about investigate security cams videos in Hanover to find out in which direction he drove his car from the last time? So, I don't know. I, I mean, there's a bunch of people with questions, and some people have what they think could be possible answers or solutions. But the whole thing, it's a its a botched police investigation I to begin with. It sounds like they're just lazy as crap and just didn't want to do, I mean, God. But, I mean, let's say it's a murder. I would think it would have to involve, let's say that it's possible that it's a murder. Wouldn't the first instinct would be, who did he check into that hotel 13 miles away from? Yep, you would think, because maybe he had something to do with it. Why were there two nooses? Oh, that's true. Was this a possibility that maybe there was two people there at one point, and they were both going to, quote unquote, hang themselves or something, and maybe he was forced to hang himself, which would account for the blood and the knocked out teeth? And then, I mean, the two nooses things confuses me. Mm -hmm. The whole thing is confusing. And why, you have a car, why wouldn't you just drive your car to where you're going and then commit suicide? If you're going to do that, why would you take trains and hop this and walk over this bridge? None of it makes sense. None of it. Mm. And it all started with him saying he was on his way and police are saying that he never even started going that way. And why can't they find out where the, where the call came to from to his dad? Why can't they locate where that came from? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe the police had something to do with it. I don't know. I mean, I guess there's a possibility. I mean, they sure didn't try to solve the case. No. So, anyways, that's the story for you guys. I'm curious what you think. So, mm -hmm. if you guys have some suggestions that you think might make sense, just send them to us. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, guys, thank you so much. We appreciate everything you do. Thank you for everything. Bye, guys. We love you. Hey, guys, we have an old friend back on the show tonight, Diane Student from History Goes Bump. Diane, thanks for coming on with us. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Jerry. I'm glad to have you on, too. As I always say whenever you're on the show, you are one of my mentors and probably the person that I've learned the most from in this industry, and I will always be eternally grateful to you. 
Well, thank you, Jerry. I appreciate that. And as you know, your podcast has been one of my favorites almost from the time you started. I mean, I was back in the, what do they call it now, the dark ages? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I, I had to go back through some a bunch of the old episodes recently and, uh, and, and look at some things. And I guess you forget because after three and a half years, it's just what you do now is what you think about. But I look back at the sound quality when I first started this with Ricky. Uh, I listened to the sound quality when Tracy and I first started. The next step up in sound quality, then the next step up again in sound quality. And it just it it kind of is kind of cool to look back and see how the show has grown, uh, just strictly from a sound standpoint. And then you know we couldn't get a single guest back in when we first started, <laughs> and now it's like I, I'm so lucky to have such great guests on week after week after week that it's it's just uh, very thankful that things have progressed the way they have. It's a good way to look at it because I know there's sometimes when I think about listening to my earlier episodes it's kind of scary. I'm not sure I want to hear that again <laughs> but when you see how far you've come it really does I don't know it kind of bolsters you a little bit. It does and then it gets it's a little frustrating sometimes because Somebody will leave a review and the review would be based on episode 15 yes. and we just got finished with like, you know, 179. So it's like, come on, man, just listen to a few more episodes before you leave the review. I know. I wish I could tell everybody, listen to the most recent episode and then go back because then you'll know where we come to. Well, you know, we, we, we put an, um, a little precursor at the first episode, if you go and listen to the first episode, it tells you all that from the beginning. Hey, that we recruited uh, the comedy and stuff on it. It changes. Uh, the sound quality gets better around, I think it's around episode 35. So, you know, come listen to the new episodes if you don't like this. So we put all that because we know most people are going to go back and listen to the first episode, you know, when they start. And uh, I guess it makes some difference. Sometimes it don't. Great minds think alike because I did the same thing. I put a little thing at the very front of the number one episode and said, the sound quality gets better, the hosting <laughs> changes, there's all kinds of things happening. So please listen to the most recent episode and then come back and enjoy all the rest. So Diane, you have had a very successful podcast, History Goes Bump for what are we we're looking at over five years now that is correct and it's it's super entertaining we run out of stuff to talk about it seems like you know everybody always asks that are you going to run out of stuff to talk about you're never going to run out of stuff to talk about but it does become more of a challenge to find uh the bigger juicier stories out there You've got how many episodes up, approximately? I know you probably don't know the exact number right off. Officially, there's 320 of them, but of course, there's some bonus casts and things in there as well. Yeah, that's a lot of stories. It is, and thank God for listeners who make suggestions, because that has really helped to come up with some of the locations that I've covered. We talked uh, a little bit earlier uh, last week when we decided that we were going to have you on the show and you are going to tell us a really cool story tonight on the Mackenzie Poltergeist. And uh, you seem to be uh, semi-excited about this one. I absolutely am. Jerry, you know I love cemeteries, and when they happen to be haunted, it's all so much better even. <laughs> and usually... <laughs> Are there any cemeteries that aren't haunted? <laughs> Actually, you'd be surprised how many aren't. I was surprised by how many are, because I figured... Why do you want to hang around a bunch of dead bodies in the afterlife? It wouldn't really be my choice. But apparently there are some spirits that do like to do that. But, you know, I have a theory behind that. I don't think most of the time it's the dead people in the cemetery that are coming back. I think it's more the people who maybe lost a loved one and found solace going there to visit their loved one. And then when the time came, they just really liked that place. You know, like Dina Marie, for example. She absolutely loves Laurel Hill Cemetery. Mm -hmm. I could see her spending some of her afterlife in that cemetery just because of the time she's enjoyed there while she was alive. That's true. And, you know, like I said, I love cemeteries. So don't be surprised if my spirit isn't bumping around some cemetery somewhere in the afterlife, too. <laughs> 
Well, I'm going to take this opportunity to turn the microphone over to you and just let you do your thing. Okay, that sounds fabulous. And Jerry, you know I'm an open-minded skeptic. So when it comes to poltergeists, I'm really, really skeptical. Some of these stories sound so far out and stuff. But this one is pretty darn believable because it has so many people that have talked about it, experienced it. It's been documented all over the place. And for that reason, I think there might be some truth to this. First of all, this cemetery that we're going to talk about is Greyfriars Kirkyard. And this is over in Edinburgh, Scotland. And for those of you who don't know, this is considered one of the most haunted cities in all of Europe and maybe even the world. And Greyfriars Kirkyard is one of the most haunted locations that's there. Richard Felix, for those of you who are over in Europe, probably are familiar with him as he was on TV's Most Haunted. And he said that the Mackenzie Poltergeist is one of the most convincing supernatural cases of all time. So this is a guy who has a lot of experience with this. So if he's saying that, there must be something to it. There's also a guy over there named Jan Andrew Henderson. He is an author and also runs the City of the Dead tour. And he's an expert on this case. And as I told you, Jerry... When I read the name of the book that he had written about this, it was called The Ghost That Haunted Itself. And I went, that sounds really familiar. I wonder if I have that book. <laughs> sure enough, I did right there on my shelf. So I was really excited. And I'm going to share some of the stories that people have shared with him when they've been on his tour. And they are amazing. Well, the reason why he is so familiar with this and why he's been given the kind of access that he has to the Kirkyard is because he lived in a house for many years that overlooked the cemetery. Unfortunately, fire swept through it in 2003, so he doesn't live there anymore. But that's why he has a lot of familiarity with this case. But before we get into talking about the poltergeist and everything, anybody who knows me knows that I care about the history. And so I want to kind of lay some groundwork here so you get a feel for the cemetery itself and then who this guy Mackenzie is that has become this poltergeist. This area feels really menacing. On one side of the cemetery, you've got this old melancholy hospital, and on the other side, you've got this really menacing-looking prison. So it's kind of a crazy place to have a cemetery. When you walk into the cemetery, it is beautiful. I know some people think it's crazy when you talk about a cemetery being beautiful, but it's got these tombstones and statuary that are ornate, wonderfully carved. Everything there is very, very old, of course. And so when you are looking at some of these tombstones, they're just covered with moss and all kinds of stuff. So it's just creepy beautiful is the way I like to say it. This is called a kirkyard, which basically... Kirk means church, and so a kirkyard is a churchyard, and a churchyard is a cemetery that's on church property. It's pretty self-explanatory. The church that sits here is named for the Franciscan friary that originally was located here, and it was managed by the Greyfriars. That's why it's called the Greyfriars Kirkyard. This was an order of Franciscan monks. The Franciscan order originally landed in Canterbury from Italy in the 13th century, and it spread across what we call the United Kingdom today. The order was later split into two different groups known as the Conventionals, and these were friars that were in the cities, and then there were the observants who wanted to keep the old, more isolated ways. So you kind of have the city guys and then the country guys, I guess is a good way to put it. The Franciscans in Great Britain became known as Grey Friars. Burials have taken place in the Kirkyard since the 16th century, so these burials go way back. But before it was a cemetery, it was a prison. So you're already looking at, first of all, a cemetery is already going to have hauntings going on because there's a bunch of dead bodies there. But if you think about the fact that there was a prison here before that, now you've got all kinds of negative energy that would be connected to that as well. 
to give you a little historical perspective on that, Roman Catholicism was pushing out of Scotland in the 16th century. And a group of people signed these covenants in Scotland that bound them to maintain the Presbyterian doctrines and they would denounce the Pope and the Catholic Church. So we have Protestantism is separating out from Catholicism and the Presbyterians were a part of the Protestants. So they kind of formed their own religious order and they had signed all of these doctrines saying that they weren't going to be a part of this and because they signed these things called covenants they were called covenanters and they proved to be a big issue for King Charles I. The national covenant was signed at Greyfriars Kirk the church there in 1638 and it was this oath to maintain the reformed religion and reject all the superstition of the Catholic Church. So Basically, the visions of Mary that were going on or people who were seeing saints and things like that. They were saying, this isn't happening. We reject all of that. We don't believe in that. When King Charles tried to push new reforms on these covenanters, they said, "Uh, we're not going to take it. And they revolted. And they managed to defeat the king in what was called the Bishop's War. Wars continued and the covenanters became the de facto government of Scotland. Later, Oliver Cromwell, who some of your listeners are probably very familiar with, he was fighting for the English Parliament, and he would defeat the Covenanters. And by 1652, they were basically decimated. In 1679, another rebellion was formed, but it was knocked down once again. They just did not have the numbers or the power. And 1,200 Covenanters were taken prisoner at this time, and they needed somewhere to put them. So they built this prison at Greyfriars Kirkyard, and it was called the Covenanters Prison. So this is the prison that I was referring to. This was not a place anybody wanted to go to. I don't think any prison at any time is. Jerry, you've talked about a lot of haunted prisons on your podcast. None of them were places that people would want to go to. Think about the worst prison ever. And that's probably what this Covenanters prison was like. This has left a lot of what I would say is bad juju behind. And the (laughs) the conditions here were awful. And many of the prisoners either ended up dying from some of the brutality or they were just plain executed. So I told you there were 1,200 of them that were imprisoned here. By the time the imprisonment came to an end, there were only 400 of these covenanters who were still alive. So you're talking 800 of them died, either because of the conditions or being put to death, that kind of thing. The ones who managed to survive, well, their reward was wonderful. They got sold into slavery. So most of them died when the ship that was transporting them to wherever they were going to be put up as slaves wrecked. So almost all of these guys ended up dying. So you can only imagine what kind of energy you have going on with this. This brings us to the Mackenzie Poltergeist. And it's named for Sir George Mackenzie, who was a Scottish lawyer. Right there. I mean, doesn't that just say bad? (laughs) (laughs) He was the Lord Advocate implementing the reforms of this King Charles II. So he had come down from King Charles I in Scotland, and he has this Sir George Mackenzie pushing forward all of the things that he wanted. He was the one who not only imprisoned the Covenanters, but he's also the one who had most of them executed. And because of this, I mean, like I said, almost all of them had died, he earned the title of Bloody Mackenzie. This was a term for him because he had originally, they didn't quite understand this guy. He originally had defended the Covenanters. He thought the Presbyterians were right and saying that they didn't want to be a part of the Catholic Church. So this is a guy that they thought was their ally. And then all of a sudden he turns on them and is putting them to death. So I don't really know what was going on in his brain. If it was a power trip for him or something like that. And prior to this, he had been involved in witch trials. And when I first read that, I'm thinking, okay, he's a bad dude, so he's putting people to death during these witch trials. Actually, 
He wasn't. He thought it was ignorant to persecute these so-called witches. So he, uh, I don't know why all of a sudden he thought that it was okay to put these other people to death, but not people who had been accused of some kind of witchcraft or whatever. When he was being Bloody Mackenzie, it was called the killing times. And he had this drive to just completely wipe out Presbyterianism. So he dies in 1691 and is buried, ironically, in Greyfriars Kirkyard in a large mausoleum. So the place where he imprisoned all these people is where he ends up being buried. So it was kind of ironic that way. The reports yeah. of his ghost haunting Greyfriars Kirkyard, you're, you're probably thinking, oh, so if he dies in 1691, reports of his ghost probably start in the 1700s or something, right? Nope. This is a very recent haunting. These reports just started in the 20th century. And what started it all is this is a, it's a big, beautiful mausoleum. There's this homeless guy. He's hanging out in the cemetery. One day it is storming like crazy. He's looking for cover somewhere. He sees the mausoleum. He thinks, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to take cover. So he's in there during this rainstorm. And he noticed that he could get through an opening that was in the back of the structure. So after he gets through that, he begins to rummage through the coffins like a grave robber. Hey, is there anything in here that I can take, use? I, you know, maybe some people had some rings or necklaces or something. And maybe that's what he was looking for. I'm not sure. But while he's doing this rummaging, he doesn't notice that the floor underneath him is not real stable. It's starting to crack. Next thing you know, he falls through the flooring because it's already started to rot away, and he ends up in this pit full of bones. The reason why there's this pit of bones there, they believe, is that this probably was somewhere like a mass grave that these plague victims had been buried in. You know, Jerry, when plagues would rip through a place, their main goal was just to get the bodies buried as quickly as possible because they wanted to get the disease out of the city, so... The only way to really do that is just bury everybody in these mass burials. You wouldn't mark it or anything like that. People may not have known that this mass burial was even there, and that's why all of a sudden they put this mausoleum on top of this mass grave. I can't imagine what it must have been like for this guy. But after he's fallen into this pit, I don't know if it's because it was all these bones or if something else scared the crud out of him. But he goes flying out of this mausoleum, screaming and yelling, and you know he's, he doesn't want to go back there. The police go back and check everything out. They see, yes, indeed, the floor is broken through. There's all these bones here. They bring in some archaeologists who figure that must be what's going on here, is that we just have a bunch of plague victims, no harm, no foul, and they just kind of cover everything back over. Well, unfortunately... The poltergeist starts right after this because Mackenzie seems to have been disturbed. Even though the bones that this guy fell into are a bunch of other people, because he was in this mausoleum, I don't know if because the floor broke out or what have you, this is really pissed off this Mackenzie guy. So now all of a sudden you have bloody Mackenzie in spirit form and he doesn't like anybody being anywhere near his mausoleum. The stories that come out of this is not just some spirit touching people and, you know, a cold breeze. You hear those reports. But this ghost injures people to the point of cuts, bruises, and even broken bones. That's how hard he is, like, throwing people down on the ground. They're breaking their arms and things like that. Most of these attacks happen in the Covenanters' prison area, and so people believe this is how Mackenzie has returned back to his roots, is where this former prison has been. This mausoleum has started to be called the Black Mausoleum, too, for this. So you've got all of this ominous stuff going on. And if the hundreds of personal reports that are out there do not convince people that this place is haunted... Perhaps the true story of how this exorcist named Colin Grant died shortly after cleansing the entire Kirkyard, and particularly this black mausoleum, might convince them. This Colin Grant guy owned a place called the Clairvoyant Shop 
and it was down on St. Mary Street. And he was also a minister at a spiritualist church. In 1999, Grant decided that it was time to go in and exercise the cemetery after people who were taking these ghost tours at the cemetery kept complaining of being hit, punched, scratched, thrown down on the ground. So he's like, something really malevolent is here. I'm going to go in and take care of it. I don't know why he thought he was going to be able to do it. But he goes in there, and it's one thing if you want to go in there yourself and do whatever you think you can do to cleanse the place. It's another to let everybody know you're going to do it and make it a public spectacle. And that's what he did with this. He made it a very public display. The press was in attendance. He held a cross in his left hand and a Bible in his right. And he claimed that he had cast out all the spirits, including Mackenzie. Right before the ritual was done, people witnessed this dark shape that seemed to glide across a window in the Edinburgh church that's there. The church was locked and no one was inside, so they couldn't figure out how this shadow figure had made an appearance in the window behind him. But it was very ominous. And a couple weeks after the exorcism, the activity seemed to ramp up again. So whatever he had done clearly did not work. And two months after the exorcism, Colin Grant had a heart attack while conducting a seance at his shop, and he died. So people started asking, was the shadow that they saw in this church, the Mackenzie poltergeist, and had it seen, you know, who's messing around out here, figured out who this guy was, and had he killed this Colin Grant? Now, I'm a skeptic. He, maybe he just had a heart attack. It happens. But... Was it because he was fooling around in here? The epilogue of the ghost that haunted itself. I want to read to you what that has to say here. It says, Kate, Ben, David, and Kara still lead City of the Dead tours into the Covenanter's prison. Derek has even returned to do an occasional tour. His dream job turning out to be not so great in reality. The Mackenzie poltergeist is stronger than ever, and its attacks seem to have increased in scope and severity. It is now regarded as one of the most conclusive and best documented paranormal cases in history. Despite the poltergeist fame, or more likely because of it, visitors still take the tour, stand in the darkness, and hope that something will happen to them. After all, they don't really believe they will encounter a supernatural entity on a ghost tour in the middle of the capital city of one of the most civilized countries on the planet until they do. And this book is just full of these stories of people who have gone on these tours and probably gotten more than what they wanted. Uh, one of the stories I want to share for you is from a woman named Megan. She had been on the tour back in June of 1999. She was from Leeds and she had just left the Covenanters prison. She says, my name is Megan. I'm 11 years old. So we're talking about a child. And Jerry, I don't know about you, but I have found when it comes to hauntings that children seem to be a little bit more sensitive to these hauntings and spirits and things like oh, that. Yeah. So when you have an 11 year old. I, I agree. I... Yeah. When you hear when you have an 11 year old saying that she experienced something for me, I'm going to perk up a little bit more because they're not going to tend to make things like that up. She said, when I went into the first place, the Covenanter's prison, I wasn't frightened. It was very dark and I couldn't see. I was scared then, and the man, the tour guide, got me to stand beside him, and then I wasn't scared anymore. My arms were very cold. When we got outside, I went to my mom and took her hand. It was not so dark, but it was still scary. When we got here, which was Candlemaker Row, the street outside the graveyard, my mom said, what had happened to your arm? There was blood on my arm. I had cuts on it, too. My mom said, how did that happen? Is it sore? I didn't know, but it wasn't sore. My arm was very cold, and it still feels cold and funny when she was making that report. And, I mean, it's, it's one thing to feel a little bit scared in the dark and how she felt cold. I'm almost wondering if when she was scratched, rather than feeling the pain that we would normally feel from a scratch, that's the cold that she was feeling. Like she could feel the fingers touching her arm. 
just yeah i would say that's probably what it was yeah so i was like it's it's one thing to be like oh i was a little scared in there it's quite another to have the actual marks to show it and the cuts were bad enough that she was actually bleeding there was a woman named savan and she was actually from minnesota here in america and she had gone on the tour there and she'd gone into the covenanters prison in august of 1999 and she said she'd had some kind of trouble breathing in here she'd been to all sorts of festivals and she wanted to try something different something that was very scottish and she said the graveyard looked pretty and not very scary so why not do a tour there the tour ended inside a tomb called the black mausoleum the tour guide began to tell us of all the creepy things that had happened in this place since the tours began. I felt a bit let down. I was enjoying myself, but I knew nothing was going to happen. And if he was telling the truth, that was the point. That, what was the point of being in this tomb anyway? So she said, then I just stopped breathing. I can't put it any better than that. I must stress that I wasn't scared or tired or feeling unwell. It was more like something had put a hand over my mouth and stop the air getting in. So basically something she can't see is suffocating her. I can't think of anything more terrifying than that. I took two or three steps back and hit the wall, then pushed forwards again, trying to get the guide's attention or to somehow get out of the tomb. I was absolutely terrified, and I remember perfectly the sick feeling in my chest that comes with being so scared. I honestly thought I was going to die. The next thing I remember was when I woke up outside. I was told I'd only been unconscious for a few seconds. The guide gave me his address after the tour and asked if I would write to him and say what had happened. I decided not to because I felt stupid about the whole thing and there was probably a logical explanation for the way I felt. Then I decided I would write something after all because I can't deny that it did happen and I have no rational explanation for it. And one of the ways you know that clearly something happened to this woman is she said the next thing I remember when I woke up outside. So something made her pass out. Right. So that to me was pretty convincing that she'd had something happen to her. And I mean, that's one of the main reports you hear is it's either these people are being pushed or scratched or they can't breathe. So I don't know what it is that he's doing that's making people not be able to breathe, if it's just obstructing their airways in this way, if he's, you know, maybe tightening on their throats, pushing on their chests. There was a woman named Rachel, and she did the tour back in September of 2000. She said, I went on a night tour to Greyfriars Graveyard with friends. In the Covenanters' prison, I felt extremely faint and started breathing rapidly. I did not get scared easily, so I don't know why I had this reaction. While we were walking toward the tomb, the black mausoleum, which we were all going to enter, felt as if I were suddenly getting colder. I did not think much of it because it was a chilly night, but as soon as we entered the room, I began to shake uncontrollably. And I don't know about you guys, I do get chilled very easily since I am from Florida. <laughs> but in order for you to like be shivering and like your teeth are chattering, you have to be really cold. At least for me, that's the case. So when people talk about a haunting and they feel a cold spot or a cold breeze or a cold wind, that's one thing. But something that's giving you such a chill that your teeth are chattering and your body is shaking, that's a real physical manifestation that you're having there where your body's trying to compensate for something being so cold. And I know it's September of 2000. We're in Scotland. It's a place that's cloudy and cold at this time of the year, possibly. But to be in a, in a, a shaking uncontrollably, that to me is really, really cold. She even ended up having to brace herself against the wall, and she started hyperventilating. I felt like I could not breathe properly. I felt better the moment we were allowed to leave the area. This was a very strange thing to happen to me because I've never fainted in my life and I've never felt that way before or since. The next day I had a welt above my left eye which did not go away for about two weeks. This experience will stay with me forever. So I don't know where this welt came from. If Bloody Mackenzie had, you know, hit her in the face or something. 
And it didn't specifically say that she had passed out, but then she seems to indicate that she did pass out at some point and that that had never happened to her before. There's a guy here, it's not just the women that are having this happen, named Kyle, and he was in the cemetery back in July of 2000, and he is actually from Missouri. He said... My incident occurred about one or two minutes after entering. I stood listening at the back of the crowd when, without hearing voices or any of the other phenomena reported, I felt something I've never encountered before. Hopefully I never will again. It was akin to having someone wrap a black cloak of ice around me. It was hard to breathe and became very cold very quickly. It was not like a breeze, though. The air was quite still and just dropped dramatically. I began to black out. So here we again are having all of these same experiences. I remembered, I remembered the guide's advice that if something strange happened to move, I tried to step away but continued to feel frozen and unable to draw a breath like a deer in headlights, totally fixed in place. I finally forced myself to jump. Though it only took about four seconds or so for the entire ordeal, it passed slowly and I recall vividly the sickening feeling in my stomach. Out of the entire group, only the lady standing next to me looked at me. Maybe she thought I was trying to be cute with an attempt to scare everyone by a sudden movement. I only wish that to be true. I'm not sure if the guide noticed or if he just let it go without trying to shake everyone else up. Usually cool-headed, I now had an acute case of the shakes. I wanted to leave but honestly was too frightened to move without the rest of the group. As the tour ended, many people went together to a nearby pub, which was my original intent of my evening. I passed on this went back to my lodgings and had a hard time falling asleep without reflecting on the evening. The next morning, I saw the guide walking down the street. I told him my story and also told him that I had said nothing the previous evening because I did not want to stop until I was well away from the activity's location. He gave me the company's phone number, and I subsequently gave them my story. So here you have a guy who was... Clearly, his intent for the evening was probably to go have some fun on a ghost tour and then go get a beer at the local pub. And he did not want to do that when he got done. And, you know, most men are not going to come forward and say, I had this horribly creepy sensation of just being, I don't know. It's to me, when you hear somebody talk about, like I said, this cold thing, they're describing something like a cold blanket just being wrapped around you. What I'm envisioning is this, Mackenzie's poltergeist is manifesting in a way that they can't see him, but that he is just putting his whole body around them and covering their mouth. And this makes me wonder when he was in charge of killing the prisoners back in the day, I'd love to know how was he killing most of them? Were they hanged or makes you wonder if a lot of these people weren't suffocated in some way? It's an interesting concept without a doubt, because there could be some kind of connection. So I don't know, Jerry. I mean, I usually poo-poo a lot of these poltergeist stories, but this one is just so convincing to me. And it's just, there's one story after another. They're all very much the same. And a lot of them seem to have been told very reluctantly. It's like the next day they're thinking about it and they're like, you know what? I need to tell them my story. So it's like they don't want to talk about it the night of. It's almost like they need to either process it or they don't believe that it actually happened. But in the light of day, they're like, no, that really happened, especially when they have these physical manifestations. All right, let me play devil's advocate. So this really isn't a devil's advocate thing right here to start off with, but it's like a little pet peeve of mine. You know, this, this uh, entity is named the Mackenzie Poltergeist. Now, I had a conversation with uh, Keith Lender last week about what I consider the definition and the, most of the paranormal world consider the definition of a poltergeist. And it really isn't something like this as much as it is someone creating uh, some type of an entity themselves through their telekinesis or something of that nature which is what most people in the paranormal uh, community deem to be a poltergeist mm -hmm. and this seems to be more of uh, a malevolent spirit or something of that nature what is your thoughts on that as far as what the name given to this entity is i totally agree i would have called it 
the Mackenzie something. I wouldn't want to call it the Mackenzie demon because, of course, that opens a whole other can of worms. But something else, because I agree with you. The main reason why I don't even necessarily put poltergeist... I wouldn't put poltergeist in the ghost column. They would be in the paranormal column because there's something that's unexplained. But I agree with you. I've always thought of poltergeist as being something that a living person is manifesting. Usually it's a, a teenage girl going through puberty. And it's just, you know, Jerry, us women, we have a mm-hmm. lot of energy. I'm surprised we don't have more, more poltergeist with menopause. <laughs> because I could throw some energy, I tell you. <laughs> so I agree with you. I don't well, understand and, and then, why this is called a poltergeist. Here's my- Here's my other question. So what if, I guess my first, here's my first question for you, because you may not know the answer to this. You know, you were telling the story about how the homeless guy fell through the floor and onto the pile of bones. But that almost sounds like there was a tunnel or something underneath the floor. So if for there to be a mass grave, that would have been filled in with dirt, I would have thought, and there wouldn't have been anything to fall through to. Mm-hmm. So it seems like it would have had to have been almost like a tunnel that had a floor over top that they had put the, uh, uh, like the pit was already there, like it was just built over top of a pit. Does that make sense? Yeah, or almost like it was a crypt that was never mapped or something, or it was mapped and they didn't care that there was a right. crypt there and just decided to put the mausoleum on top of it. And that's what I think happened. I think they just put the mausoleum right over top of it. And said, you know, this guy's big and fancy and, you know, you're unimportant and we're just going to build right over top of you. The other thing that I question, too, is how are we pinpointing this to Bloody Mackenzie? Obviously, he was a bad guy during his time and he is in the vicinity where this is happening. But we had a grave of a whole bunch of maybe plague victims disturbed. Them, to me, I would be more disturbed from their point of view, because not only were they probably not given a proper burial, but now they've also been disturbed. It was their bones that were moved around, messed around. This guy was rifling through that kind of thing. That was going to be my next point is it seems more like the, the bones that were disturbed would be more the problem with, uh, with, the haunting than Mackenzie because hey Mackenzie had been there all this time and nothing had happened and once again the same thing with the people underneath they'd been there all this time too but when the floor fell through and their bodies were disturbed is when it happened now apparently he probably disturbed Mackenzie's body too just rifling through trying to find out what he could get but I mean I, I I'm like you I kind of think you I would pinpoint it more probably on the um uh, the people that were under the mausoleum as to the the uh, reason for the haunting rather than Mackenzie. Sure. And then you have the possibility of multiple spirits, which is maybe why somebody would feel like they're being surrounded by engulfed in this cold is that if you've got a whole bunch of them around you. Yeah. Yeah. You could, like I said, it could be a crew of, uh, of people causing it to be extra cold. Mm-hmm. Well, Diane, it's a pleasure. As usual, we've got uh, some a live event coming up. We're going to be in Savannah together in October. Seems like forever away, but I'd be here before you know it. Absolutely. And you were instrumental in getting that set up. That was uh, more or less, I think, your idea. So I would call that instrumental. Well, it's a great city, and there's so much to see and do there. So it's a great place to have a live show. I'm excited because you've been there a bunch and you always shoot all these live videos when you go there and, and it's made me more curious about going. So uh, you were the inspiration without a doubt for that, that show getting set up. Well, thank you. That's very cool. And I'm looking forward to returning. So tell everybody how they can find you. I was just going to say I was looking forward to returning to Louisville too. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. I was, for some reason, I forgot all about Louisville. I remembered Savannah, but uh, yeah, Louisville is going to be fun, too, because so we're going to have uh, uh, a real life exorcist there. Yes. So that's always going to be fun. Absolutely. I'm looking and forward you get to that, to, too. Uh, you get to bring Kelly to Waverly. Yes. And uh, we're we're going to see about setting up an investigation there because, you know, we do that kind of thing now. 
That's awesome. Yep. Yep. You're uh, expanding. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it's a good idea, but yes. (laughs) So Diane, tell everybody how they can uh, find your show. And uh, of course, I'm going to just say right out, guys, if you haven't listened to the show, what you got tonight is a prime example that this is exactly like listening to uh, History Goes Bump. So except you got, you know, 350 or so more episodes you can go check out uh, on different subjects. But uh, go ahead, Diane, tell everybody how to find you. The podcast is up anywhere you can listen to podcasts and the one-stop shop for everything about finding out where we are on social media or emailing us is at historygoesbump.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. It's always a pleasure and we'll have you on again soon. Oh, thank you so much, Jerry. You know, I love you and Tracy and I absolutely love the show. So it's been my pleasure.